you need a new set of notes for today that the guys were distributing on the way in. Anybody not have those? They start on page 17. Everybody have them? Very good. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Larry. And we'll get to those notes in just a moment. A few announcements quickly because of Thanksgiving this week. Then on Wednesday, no midweek. Next Sunday afternoon, 2.30, is our next family meeting. This one is our annual meeting, and that just means that we'll present a budget for 2024. Uh, that's the only major thing that we're going to ask the church to approve for the, for the coming year, but it's an important thing. So if you are a member of the church, you'll receive this week a Zoom link for that so that you can participate next Sunday at 2.30. On Friday night, December the 9th, that's uh, uh, the Ladies' Christmas uh, Fellowship, and there is a waiting list for that. I learned this morning. So all of the slots, we only have so much room in this room. Uh, it's about 200, and we can see it about 225 or so around the round tables that we have. Uh, so there's a waiting list uh, for that. Uh, but put your name on that waiting list if you've not already registered, and hopefully uh, there'll be some openings for you to attend. On Sunday evening, the 17th of December, that's our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship, and we just have a good time with that. We just enjoy each other's company, and uh, in terms of any kind of a program, it's usually a fun program. There are usually some skits, but one of the things that Pastor Larry's been mentioning and did this morning is that we're going to try, maybe this will be our first and only year of the talent show, and you need to register for that because we need to find out how many people that we have that want to make their talents known to make sure that we have enough time for that. So go to that banner on our website and you'll be able to register and describe what it is, uh, what talent you have uh, for us to see. But we'll have a good time with it. Mark those on your calendar. This series is God's Design for Sexuality. And in the first uh, session, in the notes for the first session, uh, I was seeking to go through those, uh, those key words in that title. God and design and sexuality. And we sought to show that God is foundational in order for us to have a proper understanding of anything, much less something as important as, as sexuality. And God is foundational. We saw really in the very first lesson a few weeks ago, uh, we saw that God is foundational in order for us to be able to justify things like the laws of logic, to even be able to justify existence itself. And so I'm recommending that as you talk to people, depending on who it is and their bent, that you use that kind of an approach. Start there. Don't start with sexuality. Start with how do we know that anything is right or wrong? Uh, what basis do we have for that? Move back to the foundational issues and then move forward. So uh, God is, is foundational for a proper discussion of, of anything and certainly something as important as this. And then that, that word design. And I've tried to key on the idea that everyone must, uh, must acknowledge. And that is, in order to have wrong, you must first have right. In order, to, in order to have disorder, you must first know what order looks like. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to define disorder. In order to have abnormal, you have to know what normal is. And many people just don't think about in these categories anymore. So it's helpful for you when you have discussions for people to bring them back to God. Bring them back to these foundational issues, including things like we all believe in design. Because the moment you use words like wrong or disorder or abnormal, you are making some very important assumptions. And then with regard then to sexuality, uh, 
the Bible teaches that God gives three reasons for, uh, for human sex, and they are procreation and protection and pleasure, all three of those. Procreation, obviously, to advance the, the human race, to multiply, be fruitful and multiply. But not only that, protection, that, that marriage and confining sexual activity to within the bonds of marriage uh, is a, a protection from the kinds of craziness that we see in a culture that has freed itself from those bonds, one. But it's also a protection for the man and the woman within the marriage. That, that, that marriage gives you an outlet for sexual expression so that you don't have to go outside of that for it. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says it's okay for someone to remain single. Paul was single, and so that's okay. But if you are burning with passion, then it's better for you to marry than to do that. And the only outlet for you to, to express that sexual passion is, in fact, within marriage. So it's protection from you sinning by, going, uh, by, by engaging in sexual activity uh, outside, of, outside of what God has prescribed. And then for pleasure, within, within marriage, then sex is designed by God, Song of Solomon, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again talks about not being together physically within marriage as being depriving one another. It's a deprivation. You're defrauding, the King James uses. And so that all is because that there's the pleasure aspect of sex within marriage. That second lesson that we've been going over the last few weeks, uh, we looked at uh, God's purpose, yes, for sex, but also our deviation or perversion of, of that and how that has looked in a number of ways. Today now, we want to see, and we looked at God's remedy for it as well. And now today, top of page 17, you see I say there, strange new world. How did we get here? What do we do? And I say at the top here that American Bible-believing churches are facing a challenge that has arisen swiftly and forcefully in several secular arenas, the psychiatric, the political, and the legal. Now, the paragraphs that follow will address, uh, talk about each of those. While a few have long asserted that homosexual behavior should be regarded as normal and that federal civil rights protection should be afforded lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex, hereafter LGBTQI, persons, acceptance by wide swaths of society has come very slowly over a few decades but it's gained stunning momentum in just the, last few, just the last few years. So let me stop there for, for a moment. So this is, contrary to what some will try to tell you, this is a recent phenomenon. Now, what's recent about it is the public expression of these things. It's not to say that any of them never existed, prior to the last few decades. What it is to say is the public expression and certainly acceptance is, is, very, is very recent. The advance, though, of a variety of forms of deviation does not mean that those are the first. So I want to remind you, friends, of this, that the, the public advance of a variety of sexual deviation does not mean that these things that we're seeing now and we're surprised by and concerned by 
Those are not the first public deviations that have been accepted. Unfortunately, in our culture, for a very long time now, we've accepted pornography. Well, that's a, that's a, pub, that's a deviation from God's norm for sex within marriage. But we've accepted that. And we've accepted it for a very long time. You say, well, I don't accept it. I don't accept porn. Well, <laughs> you accept a lot more porn than you think. I mean, right now, if I, if I say porn, you're thinking about going to you know, a porn site, going to a pay site, or you know, something like that. And, of course, there's all that stuff on the Internet. But the things that we watch on TV would have been considered pornographic just 60, 70 years ago. Our grandparents and great-parents would have thought of those as pornographic. My father died in 1973, so 50 years ago. If my dad were to come back today, and he were to see what's on television, he would be shocked. Absolutely shocked. Just on regular television. But we get desensitized to that, so we get sucked into that, and we think then that there is this norm, well, it's a norm that has shifted over time. It's not God's norm. We become desensitized to it, and then we see these other things that have now come more recently, and we're appalled at that, but in fact, if we're going to use the right standard, it shouldn't be where is the culture and then compare the newest thing to it. But rather, it should be God's standard and where's the culture fit according to that. And if you do that, the culture has been adrift for a very long time. No-fault divorce. You know, believe it or not, there was a time <laughs> not very long ago where in order to get a divorce... You actually had to go to court and you had to, the term was you sue for divorce. And you had to have good reason to get a, a divorce in order for it to be legally, legally given. But we have had for now several decades, no fault divorce. And so because of that, you have many people who are divorced and as a result are, are single, but they're still pursuing their sexual lives, many of them. And that's become acceptable, cohabitation. You know, as I was a kid, I would hear my mom talk about people shacking up. But, you know, this is TV. People are doing it all the time. Marriage, they're just living, they're just living together. Okay? So cohabitation or, or shacking up, but we've, we've accepted that. And I bring that up so that we can kind of recalibrate our, our thinking, recalibrate it to the Bible standard rather than the culture standard. And because I'm convinced that a culture that allows those kinds of things and accepts them, pornography, no-fault divorce, cohabitation, will in fact then move toward other forms of deviation. I mean, why wouldn't you? If there's no standard that keeps you tethered, then why wouldn't there be other forms of deviation introduced? And then when people object to those, say, in effect, who are you? <laughs> you guys gave up, you guys gave this up a long time ago. And as I started out in the very first lesson in this series, one of the reasons that I reminded us of all of the sexual scandals that have taken place within the evangelical world, is because that so harms our credibility, does it not? 
as you try to address now these new forms, and then people are able to rightly say, who are you people? <laughs> to judge somebody else, you've got all, all these scandals, clean up your own house. But this is, nevertheless, contrary to what people want to say now in our culture, hey, why are you getting all wigged out about LGBT? Why all of a sudden are you concerned about this? So this is the way we're addressed. Why all of a sudden are you concerned about this? So it's turned as if all of a sudden we became concerned about something that's been around for a very long time. Well, it has not been around as it's being practiced now. It has not been public. It has not been widely accepted. And so the new concern that's being expressed is because this is a new phase. There is no doubt about that. In fact, it may surprise you to learn that the first country in the world, the entire world ever, to legalize same-sex marriage was in 2001. The Netherlands became the first nation in the entire world, in the history of the world, <laughs> to legalize same-sex marriage. Our church started in 2001. Point is, that was just a couple decades ago, guys. That wasn't that long ago. And it was the first nation in the world to do that. So this most definitely is a new thing. 2015 is when the Supreme Court in the United States issued its decision that we'll see on page 18 in a moment. So what's new here is not that people have never practiced these things over, over centuries and even millennia. It's rather the, the public nature and the rapid acceptance. Second paragraph on page 17 then. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM. And are we on five or six now? What are we on? Five, DSM five? Okay. So it's gone through various iterations over the decades, and now DSM five is considered the Bible of psychiatry, as I say here. But it defined homosexuality as a disorder or sexual orientation disturbance as recently as 1987 but has since been removed, that's been removed altogether. The acceptance of homosexuality by the psychiatric profession has paved the way for its advance in other areas as well. The removal of homosexuality from the psychiatric canon has undoubtedly facilitated the rights of those who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Adoption rights, same-sex marriage, and the repeal of military prohibitions would never have occurred if homosexuality continued to be seen as it was just a few decades ago. So that's a, a huge shift that affects other areas then of the, the culture. And then there's politically. Until just a few years ago, candidates for office felt obliged to define marriage as between a man and a woman. Barack Obama was elected to his first term in just 2008, so 15 years ago. And when campaigning for the White House, he stated his position is opposition to same-sex marriage. Once elected, the administration says his views, the administration said his views of marriage were evolving. Later, the Obama administration announced that it would not defend in the federal courts a law that had been enacted by our Congress in 1996 called the Defense of Marriage Act. 
which for federal purposes defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and it allowed states to refuse to sanction or recognize same-sex marriages. That law was signed by Bill Clinton. But then years after, he said it was a mistake and it should be overturned. When DOMA was challenged in the courts, the Obama Justice Department refused to defend the law, which is what administrations normally do. You have a Justice Department, you have the Attorney General who runs, is appointed by the President, runs the Justice Department. The President also appoints a Solicitor General. The Solicitor General is the one who argues the position of the government before the Supreme Court. So normally, if you have a federal law that's been passed by Congress, then that would be defended by the appointed Solicitor General before the Supreme Court, but the Obama administration refused to defend it at all. And for all its history, next paragraph, the military had refused to enlist open homosexuals, citing problems with unit cohesiveness if enlisted men and women were forced to share a bunkhouse with someone who practices same sex. During the 1990s, President and Commander-in-Chief, therefore, Bill Clinton, ordered the policy change to, from a prohibition to, look, just mind your own business, in effect. That's the phrase, don't ask, don't tell. That, and that was, that was what they called it. So instead of the military asking applicants about their orientation, they would no longer ask at all, but still reserve the right to dismiss anyone who openly identified. That policy lasted through the administration of George W. Bush until the election of Obama, who changed the military's policy to, for the first time in its history, allow openly gay persons to gain entry into the nation's armed services. So I'm putting these in here, and I'm not, uh, and I'm not actually making a comment at this point about public policy. I'm simply pointing out that this is what the policy was, and this is what it is now. And it's all happened relatively quickly, okay? We'll have occasion to talk about public policy a bit uh, in, the, in the weeks to come. And then you have, at the bottom of page 17, the legal. So you have the psychiatric, the political, and then thirdly, the legal landscape. And that has shifted as well. As recently as 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that states could outlaw sodomy. So in 1986, you had a a Supreme Court decision challenging uh, a state law that prohibited homosexual activity, homosexual behavior, challenged that as unconstitutional. The Supreme Court said, no, it's constitutional. That actually states can do that. States can outlaw that. And that was just in 1986. And so if states could outlaw homosexual behavior, then they could obviously outlaw same-sex marriage, which all 50 states did. But in 2003, the court reversed that 1986 decision, did so in a 5-4 to four ruling, with Justice Anthony Kennedy writing the majority opinion, setting the stage for prohibitions against same-sex marriage to be challenged. <clears throat> so that name, Anthony Kennedy, and a 5-4 decision. So I'm just going to take a moment here to point out to you how important it is for us to pray about and for our government, for us to be as informed as we can, and then participate to whatever level we, we can, certainly voting. Uh, and here's why. Anthony Kennedy, I think, really highlights that, that need. 
Because Anthony Kennedy ended up being the swing vote. He's now retired as of a couple years ago. But he ended up being the, the swing vote on a number of very important five to four decisions um, for a, a number of years in his final years on the court. But Anthony Kennedy came to the, uh, came to the court in 1987. 1987. And that year is important because some of you know your presidents and your years. So this is the second term of Ronald Reagan. Reagan gets an opportunity to put uh, a appoint a Supreme Court justice in that year. And he chose uh, a man named Robert Bork. Robert Bork's name became a verb. It's a verb to this day to be borked. Okay. So I'm old enough to remember those Bork hearings. And they were a zoo, similar to the zoo a few years later that was the Clarence Thomas hearings, and then later, more recently, the Brent Kavanaugh hearings. But prior to that, Supreme Court hearings to confirm a justice to the Supreme Court, nobody knew, even knew about them. Nobody even cared about them. And many of them would happen literally within a matter of hours, not days, hours. The person would come, they would present themselves before the Senate Judiciary Committee for a few hours, answer some questions. A recommendation was made to the full Senate to approve it. They voted, they approved it, and it was done. But because since certainly the 1970s, what used to be moral issues have now come into the public square. Things like abortion things like homosexuality. Now these have taken on, these Supreme Court appointments have taken on significance they didn't have before. Now people really care about them. And they really cared about Robert Bork getting on the court because Bork was replacing a liberal justice and it was going to change the balance of the court. And his nomination was defeated. So Reagan and the Reagan administration had to now come up with somebody else. So they nominated a guy named Douglas Ginsburg. No relation to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Another conservative guy that nobody had ever heard of, and they thought hopefully he'll be able to get through. He doesn't have much of a, a, a written paper trail for them to criticize like Bork did. Two days after he is nominated, it turns out that he had smoked marijuana at Harvard Law School with some of his uh, law school students. And marijuana was outlawed in all 50 states at the, at the time. So he was breaking the law with his law school students. He remained on the federal bench. He just retired actually a few years ago. But his nomination was withdrawn. So they're now on number three. And so they are reeling at this point. And they had to come up with somebody that they knew on the one hand, was a little bit conservative, but they knew wasn't so conservative that he couldn't get through, and guess who that was? That's how Anthony Kennedy got on the court. And so the political wins matter. Who's in charge of the Senate, for example, matters. Because the, the, the Senate uh, had, in that year that Bork was nominated, had a majority a majority, Democrat majority, who didn't like Bork, didn't like Ginsburg, and didn't care much for Kennedy, but he was acceptable enough. 
Guess who was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee during those hearings? A guy named Joe Biden, have you ever heard of him? He was the chairman of that committee at the time. So we have to, as Christians, the first thing we got to do, friends, is pray, <laughs> be aware, and be as active as you know, we, we can be at the very minimum voting. Top of page 18. As expected then, with all of that, the constitutional validity of bans to same-sex marriage was challenged. It winded its way through the federal courts and it reached the Supreme Court in 2015. On April 28th of that year, the court heard oral arguments in the case Obergefell versus Hodges, more popularly known as the same-sex marriage case. During that session, Kennedy shows up again, and he said, the def definition of marriage as between one man and one woman has been with us for millennia, and it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better. That was actually somewhat encouraging to hear him say that during oral argument. However, within two months, the same Justice Kennedy would write the majority opinion, and yet another, you see it, 5-4, ruling that made same-sex marriage a constitutional right that cannot be abridged by any state. So it is, it is ensconced now in our legal system as a constitutional right, cannot be denied to anyone in, in any state. Now, if that five to four, instead of Kennedy, if that's Bork, or if that's Ginsburg, then this is a different, this is a different situation. And we're actually, we're actually living a, a bit of a different reality. You would still have pressures pushing in, in that direction for sure, but not with, not with legal sanction. So again, just underscores how important that area is. All of this has happened, next paragraph, very, very quickly. Within many of our lifetimes, we have moved from a society adhering to traditional Christian values to a post-Christian culture and now to the beginning of the brave new world that Algis Huxley predicted in his book by that name. It's a world that Christian thinkers have been warning about for a good while. The late Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote in his seminal work, How Should We Then Live the Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture? If there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. You guys have heard that somewhere, right? I steal from other people. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final or ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. Given these changes and challenges, it's imperative for Bible-believing churches to restate what the Bible teaches about homosexuality and also consider then how we will interact with an increasingly hostile society and those close to us who are affected by this, perhaps within, perhaps within their, their families or a friend or a co-worker and so on. So we need to talk about those things. So how are we going to react? One of the things I've been trying to do over the last few years uh, when I have made mention of political issues from a teaching rostrum, from the, from the pulpit, my objective in all of that has been to, to bring you, bring us, back from the cliff. <laughs> because 
my pastoral job, I think, part of it is to have my finger on the pulse of what's going on with the congregation and then try to address it with principles from God's Word. And what I've sensed over these last several years is that we have people really just ready to jump. They're scared to death. Christian people, scared to death about where the culture is and where the culture's going. And so as we now recount what I just did on this page and a half, and we see that, yes, we have arrived at a moment that you know, a guy like my father would not have been able to predict in the 70s, and he would be shocked at where we are. Even with all of that, friends, we need not fear. What I've been trying to do is keep us from being a fearful people. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid because God is the ruler. Biden is not. Trump is not. Obama is not. God is the ruler. God has, is moving his plan forward. I have an opportunity to be a part of that plan in his church, carrying out his mission through his church, seeing people called out of the world and to him, seeing people change, seeing people who struggle with particular kinds of sins like we're talking about here, changed. We get the opportunity to do that. And no matter what the government does, no matter where the culture goes, guess what? We will always be doing that, always be doing that. You get Christians who say, hey, they want to cancel Christianity. Think about that phrase, cancel Christianity. And think about, say, I don't know, Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm going to go out and tweet, they're, gonna can they're trying to cancel Christianity? When the apostles were thrown in jail, did that cancel Christianity? When the martyrs were killed, did that cancel Christianity? Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I'm not, I don't have a martyr wish. <laughs> I don't want to be killed. But if it came to that in my lifetime, nothing's going to cancel Christianity and nothing's going to defeat God's plan in this world. So I'm saying, chill. And we've got an election coming up again. Chill. January, January the 24th is a Wednesday. And we're not going to have our normal Wednesday services on January 24th because we have a guest speaker, Jonathan Lehman, is going to be here on that evening. And I encourage you to be here to hear him. He's written a number of books that relate to Christians and culture and politics. He's got a Ph.D. in political philosophy. He's a good theologian. He's a great guy all the way around. So about a year ago, I said, hey, will you come in January? <laughs> he lives out in D.C. He's a pastor out there. Will you come? Because I want our church to have the right mentality going into a new election year in 24. The week before that, he's going to be interviewed on WMUZ on the Bob Duco show. And then he'll be with us on that Wednesday night. So we'll, we'll keep announcing it. So do we want to become Christian nationalists then? Some of you may not know what that is, but it's really becoming very popular among evangelical Christians. We got to mobilize to gain political power so we can take power back from those people. 
Now, I'll vote to do that. I'll advocate. I'll use my right to free speech for all of that. And then whoever wins in the public square, so be it. And I'll live and do my thing as a Christian, whoever it is. But I don't feel like my mission, I know our mission is not that we got to take power back from the infidels. But that's what many people think, and that's what Christian nationalism is about. So, don't wig out, chill, we'll be okay, the mission will move forward, gates of hell will not prevail, middle of page 18. What is homosexuality? It is sexual desire for a member of the same, thus the word homo, sex. Homosexuals seek sexual satisfaction with members of the same sex. LGBT is an oft-used acronym that represents various manifestations. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Lesbian refers to female homosexuals. Gay is a general term to refer to homosexual men or women. Bisexual refers to sexual attraction to both males and females. Transgender designates those who identify as the opposite of their biological gender. So first and most important, what does the Bible teach about any of this? Going back to the first part of your Bible in the book of Leviticus, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus, again, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. The book of Judges gives a story about while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old, men, old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Now, that's the first part of the Bible. It's the Old Testament. In the Mosaic law, of which Leviticus is a part, you can see that it was very clearly outlawed and there were very severe sanctions for being involved in it. Now that's the Old Testament and it's the Old Testament law. We are, as many people will rightly point out when this debate goes forward, what does the Bible teach and what about what the Bible teaches is applicable today, they will point out that we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. I thought you guys believed, especially Baptists, that we're not under that law, and they are right, we are not. So what does that mean? What do we do with the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, including the law that God gave through Moses, which is no longer directly applicable to us today? What do we do with things that it teaches? Especially in light of the most well-known passage in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, all, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. All Scripture is useful. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy, and he says, Scripture, what Scripture did Timothy have? The only Scripture that Timothy had at the time was actually the Old Testament. The New Testament is being written. Most of it has not been written. Paul's writing part of it when he writes that. So when he writes, all Scripture is useful, what Timothy has is the Old Testament. Paul's saying the Old Testament's useful. 
And the Old Testament includes the law. It's useful. Now, we're not under it. So the same penalties that were required for a particular act in the Old Testament law don't need to be applied in our day. The church is not a theocracy, and we are not under the Mosaic law in that sense, but it's still all useful. And here's how I would recommend to you that it's useful. That the Old Testament teaches us things about God, teaches us things about people, and it teaches us things about God's grace to those people. Those three things don't change. God, people, and God's interactions, God's grace to people. Those don't change from one testament to another. So when you see God's character revealed in laws that he has given, then you make an equivalent of that in our day. So let me, give you a, let me give you an example that I do in our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy has, as one of its many laws, one of them is when you build a house and you have a flat roof, put a parapet, it says, around the edge of the roof, a parapet. That was like a fence around these flat roofs so, so nobody falls off. That was part of the law. Build a fence around the top of your roof so nobody falls off. Now, I'd be, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody here has a flat roof. Most of us don't have flat roofs. But they did. They all had these flat roofs. This is why one of the reasons that, you know, David is on the top of the roof. One of the reasons they had a, when he saw Bathsheba, they had these flat roofs, and in order to be cool in the evening, they would, to cool off, they would go up there when it was cooler, and it was where they would even socialize. So you have those, you, and put, the law says put a parapet around it. Well, okay, is that useful? Yeah, here's what, here's what you're learning about God. You're learning that God cares about people, and he doesn't want people to get hurt. <laughs> he doesn't want his image bearers to get killed. He doesn't want them to fall off the roof. You know what that means for you? Shovel your sidewalk. So the mailman doesn't get killed and doesn't sue you, uh, by the way, too. So it, it all has applicability, even if it's not directly applicable the way it was under the Mosaic Law. And these laws reflect something about the character of God because, as I hinted back a few weeks ago, in the very first chapter of the Bible, when it says we were made as humans in God's image, male and female, he created them. That that male and female diversity is part of the reflection of God. That God is a unity and a diversity. He's one God. He's three persons. And God makes marriage and rel human relationships to reflect that unity and that, and that diversity. Homosexuality violates that. So it's contrary to nature. That's why it says it's detestable. The New Testament's going to say the same. Uh, but it also uh, violates uh, the character of God. But that all aside, even if you don't have the Old Testament, here's the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men 
and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Jude. It says Jude 1-7 there. It really should just be Jude 7 because Jude only has one chapter. But anyway. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment, it says, of eternal fire. The reason that homosexuality is referred to still and was referred to in the Supreme Court cases that I mentioned earlier as sodomy is because of this story in the Bible from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the clear teaching of Scripture is that homosexuality is sin. A homosexual lifestyle cannot be harmonized with God's standard of righteousness. A person cannot live a homosexual lifestyle and be Christian at the same time. The Bible teaches. Now, notice homosexual lifestyle doesn't mean that the person who has a uh, predilection that the person who has temptation, that the person who has attraction, that's a different thing. We hinted at that, uh, in, in fact, in previous lessons talked about it, but we're going to talk about it more starting in the middle of page 19 and, and beyond. Is homosexuality worse than other sins? You look on page 20, is homosexuality normal? But then one of the things we want to get to is, is, there a Christian, is there such a thing as Christian homosexuals? Top of page 21. And, importantly, on page 22, how should Christians treat homosexuals and their families? Can, in fact, homosexuals change? And so on. Okay, so bring this back with you in the weeks ahead, and we will look at those important issues. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for instructing us in your word about everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we, we thank you for telling us who you are, what you are like, and telling us what deviates, what is disordered, because it does not reflect you and the world that you have made for human flourishing. So thank you, Lord, that we don't grope in darkness, but we have the light of your word. And then having learned that word and seen what is ordered and what is disordered, what is normal, what's abnormal. Uh, help us now to think well about how we apply your word to our circumstances, to this moment in time, to this ministry opportunity in the culture to which you have called us. As your people, collectively as your church, how do we minister to families who struggle with these, with these issues? and individuals who struggle with these issues. So Lord, we ask for your aid in the weeks ahead as we look at these important matters that we will please you, that we will be united in the way we see what you have said and how we'll seek to apply your word as best we can. Go with us this week as we serve you where you've assigned to us, give us safety. May uh, all of our brothers and sisters enjoy uh, a blessed Thanksgiving 
as we render thanks to you for all that we are and all that we have. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.